I'm Pat McKay, and this is Providence Ventures Radio, where we talk about funding the future of healthcare. That is our focus. That will always be our focus for as long as the moon controls the tides or however long we say. I have two guests with me today, Jeff Stolte from Providence Ventures and Sunil Gupta, MD from Intelligent Retinal Imaging Systems, aka IRIS. Uh, quite a clever acronym, I must say. Thank you both for being on the program. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Dr. Sunil Gupta, you are a nationally recognized retinal surgeon, a successful entrepreneur, and a healthcare pioneer. I don't know if you realize this, but those are all very difficult things to become. I'm, uh, I'm guessing you've been incredibly busy. There, there can't be a lot of downtime between surgery, entrepreneuring, and, uh, and, and pioneering. You're, pro- you're probably not a Fortnite enthusiast, for example. Uh, uh, you, you don't play Fortnite, do you, uh, Dr. Gupta? Well, actually, uh, I don't, <laughs> Jeff, uh, Pat. I uh, actually just figured out what this game was. Uh, I was watching Saturday Night Live last week. <laughs> that is... Yeah, it's sweeping, it's sweeping the world, Crazy. essentially. But no, no game time. Yeah, well, it's because you're too busy. That's the, that's obviously, that's the only reason. Um, Dr. Gupta, you're working tirelessly to develop improved healthcare delivery systems built with cloud-based technologies and lean methodology, uh, which specifically revolves around the tenets of continuous improvement and respect for people, uh, which is a very interesting model for healthcare in particular, and we'll come back to that. Um, You're helping the health industry design better surgical and efficiency models. You hold multiple diagnostic and pharmaceutical patents, and you're leading the efforts to bring advanced techniques to retinal therapy. You also happen to be the founder, chairman, and chief medical officer of the subject of today's podcast, IRIS, uh, which uh, which really is a terrific acronym for a company, uh, especially an eye company like yours. Um, I'm curious, actually, how that naming process went? Were you shooting to make IRIS work from the very beginning, or did you kind of already have some words that naturally fell into place and you just found with a bit of massaging you could nail IRIS? How did that, uh, how did that work? That's a good question, Pat. Yeah, so I uh, actually wanted uh, something that was an easily recallable name. And, uh, and you know, we uh, do a lot of clinical trials, and every clinical trial in retina and in medicine has an acronym. So we spent a lot of time <laughs> coming up with acronyms. And so IRIS came about uh, because it was a well-recognized term or name. And then we built, uh, you know, the sort of intelligent retinal imaging systems around that, specifically speaking to the fact that we were ultimately heading the way of creating an artificial intelligence uh, uh, and machine learning company that focused on the retina space. So I think the combination of those two things uh, uh, came uh, came to be Iris. So many people in communication spend so much time. I've spent a lot of time on naming projects as a communications professional. Um, but, the, but the name is great. That worked out fantastic. It says a lot. But uh, tell us more about your company, Iris, uh, anyway. Sure. So Iris uh, came about because of a problem that needed to be addressed. Uh, you know, I've been doing retina for 25 years, and uh, I, uh, you know, still see patients who present too late in the game. So what does that mean? Uh, so the retina, or the back of the eye and the optic nerve, 
our neurologic tissues. And once they go bad, just like your brain or spinal cord, there's no replacing it. You can't just put in another one or transplant another one. And so ideally, we want to catch these patients at a point and hopefully have treatments for them. The beautiful thing is, is that over the last 20 years, 30 years, we've been able to develop lasers and now biologic agents that prevent every diabetic from going blind. So here you have an amazing treatment. If you had something like that for cancer, everybody would, you know, uh, be saying we achieved our moonshot. We've been able to do that. The only issue is that we got to identify the patients early enough to be able to, you know, sort of prevent them from losing vision. If we catch them early enough, we can treat them. So really, in today's world, no diabetic should be going blind. Yet, uh, you know, people our age in the working age group patients, uh, it's the leading cause of blindness in the U.S. and worldwide. And uh, the U.K., NHS, and the United Kingdom in certain regions decided, okay, you know, we're going to create a model where we make sure every diabetic is evaluated once a year. And they implemented a very similar solution where, you know, they're a single payer program and they can do a lot of things. And in doing that from 2000 to uh, 2000, uh, excuse me, from 1990 to 2000, the leading cause of blindness was diabetic retinopathy in these regions. They implemented a similar program of diabetic retinal screening in the primary care setting. And they were able to now uh, say that diabetic retinopathy is no longer the leading cause in their registry of blindness. It's inherited retinal disorders. And that's because they identified these patients, used the therapies that uh, have been sort of created, and to actually achieve the end game. And so with that in mind, uh, we created IRIS to you know, sort of scale that within the U.S. and be able to achieve a similar outcome, uh, hopefully at Providence and other institutions around the country. Uh, that's you know wonderful news you know for people particularly for people uh, obviously with 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 diabetes and who have that concern. Um, Jeff Stolte, thank you for coming back yet again to the podcast. You're a regular now. You're not just a guest expert. You're basically also my co-host at this point. By the uh, by, the next episode I'll be unnecessary. You're putting me out of a you're putting me out of a job, Jeff. That's what I'm saying here. Thanks, Pat. It's great to be back on the program and <clears throat> certainly with a founder I so deeply respect, no less. Um, I think your job is safe and secure, though. I, I love what I do. And I the only thing I would say is if you were an announcer for the Chicago Cubs radio broadcast, might might be a different story. But you're good. <laughs> exactly. I think I'll I think I'll go ahead and I'll I'll, I'll I'll, I'll stay where I am. I'll stay in my lane. I think that's excellent advice. Um, well, okay. So as I mentioned, Jeff, you've uh, you've been on the program, but for folks just meeting you, you're a recognized speaker and leader in the healthcare venture capital space. You have 15 plus years of investment experience in medical technology. You're currently a partner with Providence Ventures, where you helped build and now manage a $150 million VC fund on behalf of Providence St. Joseph Health which in itself is a $23 billion healthcare system. Um, so, Jeff, tell us how you and Providence got involved with Iris and Dr. Gupta. Yeah, so the companies we look at, Pat, come to us from a variety of sources. Um, the Providence Ventures team spends a good deal of time with the investor and entrepreneur community, which in healthcare is a surprisingly small world. 
my favorite introductions are from colleagues in the industry with whom I've worked before or who are deeply plugged into the areas we're interested. And that happens to be the case with a gentleman named Grant Chamberlain uh, from the investment group Ziegler. He's a longtime healthcare investment banker who also happens to sit on the board of the American Telemedicine Association. So he really has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in that sector. Grant sent the Iris story to me and walked me through the initial pitch, and it frankly sounded almost too good to be true. Normally in situations like that, my skepticism goes way up, but I decided the company was at least worth introducing to my clinical colleagues to get their take. Um, as I think I've described in other podcasts, we rely heavily on the experts in our organization to sort of partner their operational and clinical perspective on companies we look at with our investment perspective. And each one of those discussions in the case of Iris led to increased interest and conviction that what the company had um, was of dramatic importance to our organization and the healthcare market in general, and that Providence should be using it because it adds value to the ecosystem in a number of ways. Was there a particular, you know, was there a particular meeting or a, um, I'm always curious how these things go. If it was like, if, um, you know, if Dr. Gupta and, and their team came in and just had a knockout meeting and a great, um, a great presentation that kind of laid it all out, or did you put it together through several meetings and several sources of information? Like, how do you hone in on making a big decision like that? Yeah, that's it. It's a great question. Um, it was not a single meeting. It was a series of meetings, probably to Dr. Gupta and his team chagrin. There were a lot of meetings. Um, and, and I would say, you know, again, our model is um, we, we don't want to be the tail that wags the dog for Providence. We want to be, we want to have our finger on the pulse of what's going on in the healthcare market from an innovation perspective and make introduction into our experts, um, you know, to, to really get their take. And in this case, I think, um, Dr. Gupta's team made the rounds with us and my counterpart on the clinical innovation side, a physician named Dr. Sunita Mishra. Um, and I think we talked to no less than half a dozen of our regions, introducing the company to clinical experts, primary care operational experts and the like. And again, in those meetings, I'm really a fly on the wall. I mean, I want to hear I want to see how the company, quote unquote, sells its solution. I want to see the other side of the table. I want to see their body language, whether the value proposition that a company brings to the table resonates with them, and ultimately whether it leads to action. And in the case of Iris, over that span of numerous months and dozens of meetings, um, we began to see our regional experts put their hands up and say, I want this technology in my clinical setting. It's better for patients. It's great for my doctors. It's great for our populations. And when I hear those types of messages coming from my colleagues, um, I get very excited. I mean, it sounds like a great partnership. From your side, Dr. Gupta, now obviously you've, you've got something going on. You've got a technology and a method and an experience that, that, you're, uh, that you're very confident in. But prepping for meetings like these, I would imagine, you know, um, have to be, have, you know, have to be a little bit nerve wracking or have to kind of get you on your toes a little bit, you know, to, uh, so that, so that you, you know, you, you, you articulate the right things and, 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 and get to the end goal you're, you're after. What's, what's it, what's prepping for that stuff like on your side? Yeah, I think that's, uh, interesting. I mean, I think, you know, having a bit of gray hair and knowing the topic and, you know, sort of being the expert in your topic and, sort of having, uh, you know, the vision and uh, sort of driving to that vision, in my opinion, makes it pretty easy 
to uh, sort of re- reflect the passion really is not a stressful meeting for me uh, as long as I can speak to what uh, what I'm there and what I'm there to deliver uh, for the healthcare system. Having been around long enough to kind of to know what you want, know what you got going on, and know what you have, um, and then you know from my from where I'm sitting, it sounds like a, a terrific partnership and, and just a, a terrific company. You know, I mean, stopping preventable blindness is an amazing mission, obviously. Um, and there is so much, you, you know, Iris does to succeed in that mission. There, you know, you you have your specific approach to retinal Im- imaging, the, your embrace of the cloud-based technologies. You know, the, the process you use for, for getting, you know, people in for their screenings on time, which is obviously very important. Um, um, there are a lot of great things happening. Um, that means there are also a lot of moving parts. So, Jeff, as an investor, you know, as, a, as an investor and, and you know, in a, in a partnership and trying to, and trying to figure, figure out how to, how to scale something, how to make something work, how do you know what to focus on in order to be helpful to a company that has as many moving parts as Iris? So I think in Iris's case, Pat, one of their important value propositions is the ability to move diabetic retinopathy exams out of the ophthalmology and optometry office where they've traditionally been proctored and into the primary care setting, as as both Dr. Gupta and I have discussed. And any time a patient is forced to migrate from primary care to a specialist for additional diagnostic care, there's a risk of what we call, quote unquote, leakage. Patients who need care and have it prescribed, but end up not getting it for a whole host of reasons. In Iris's case, by moving diabetic retinopathy exams into the primary care office, there's a much higher probability of our, diagnosti- or of our diabetic patients rather receiving this important test, which, again, as we've mentioned, can detect and enable effective lower-cost treatment if the disease is caught early enough. However, anytime you are adding a new diagnostic to a setting of care that's traditionally unfamiliar with it, one of the paramount considerations is this broad concept of workflow. We talk a lot about that in healthcare as we've introduced more and more technology into our clinical setting over the last decade or two. The irony of all of the technology that has been introduced into these clinical settings is that the care processes have become more and more routinized. Our docs are extremely busy. They see a high volume of patients. Um, Companies introducing new diagnostic tests like IRIS have to ensure that A, they can fit seamlessly into existing care protocols, and B, that they don't become an afterthought. And so by integrating with other systems our clinical teams rely on and partnering closely with its early customers within Providence, we share best practices back and forth to help ensure that Iris is actually used in an effective manner. So workflow is, no, is paramount. It makes sense. Now, I mean, oftentimes, um, does a screening, could a screening actually happen like during sort of a routine sort of physical with a primary doc for a diabetic patient? Dr. Gupta, I'll, I'll let you answer that one. Sure. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I think that that's the idea. So, I mean, the, one of the issues is why are we, when we have the know-how to prevent blindness, why aren't we doing it? Uh, is, you know, we as physicians sort of live for that, right? Anything that we can do. And it's not that the primary care doc doesn't want that patient evaluated or that the optometrist or ophthalmologist is not ready to take that patient and evaluate them. The problem is, is that there's uh, inefficiencies in the system and healthcare, you know, uh, has a ton of inefficiencies. So even though the primary care doc tells the patient that they should go get an eye exam 
you know, the patient uh, may say that, hey, listen, I don't have any vision symptoms, which they could be losing their sight and not have any vision symptoms. Um, they could say it's going to be a copay. They're going to dilate. I mean, there's a bunch of barriers. But for the last 30 years, we've made a diabetic retinal evaluation a quality measure for primary care. And as much as they've tried, they've not been able to, you know, move the patient to the other side. To Jeff's point, then, you know, what we want to do is go where the patients are. And I think that's where sort of, you know, healthcare uh, mobile apps, uh, sort of the technology side of things, if we can bring the expertise to where the primary care docs are, and more specifically where the patients live, and then scale that opportunity, I think that's the only way that you're going to be able to ultimately achieve the end game. So, you know, 40% of diabetics do go to an ophthalmologist or optometrist and get their eyes evaluated. 60% of this country don't. And in some institutions, it's 70 or 80%. Wow. And we've been able to show in entities that we've gone live with that we can actually move uh, their screening rates of diabetics in primary care from 30, 40% to 80, 90%. And so, uh, you know, I think that, uh, again, we got to think differently about healthcare delivery in the next phase of healthcare if we're going to improve outcome, you know, sort of reduce costs. Uh, and, you know, do all the things that, you know, we think uh, will achieve uh, what they call a triple aim or a better end game. Right. I mean, that's that's a very dramatic evolution from the status quo there. Um, a, a few times, uh, both of you have mentioned scaling. Um, you know, it's obviously it's 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 that's something every startup has to face is is this process of, of, of scaling. And it's and it's very hard to do, especially in the medical field. Um, but it's integral to a company's success. So I'd, I'd be curious just to hear hear about scaling from from your perspective, uh, Dr. Gupta. Like how did how did the scaling process go go for you? Was it completely smooth and easy? Were there a few bumps in the road? How did it how did it how did it kind of go down? Yeah, I think that uh, it's interesting. It's not easy. And so I actually have a process engineering background and, uh, you know, I went to undergrad at University of Washington there. And so, you know, as process engineers, we try to create sort of systems that repeat themselves. And interestingly, uh, you know, uh, as a data scientist working at Mattel and other things, we always tried to build these systems that were scalable. However, <laughs> it's very different in healthcare. And I think that you can sort of apply lean processes uh, you can uh, constantly be trying to improve processes, but then, you know, scaling it from one entity, one clinic that you've achieved an outcome to, you know, a hundred others is, you know, often difficult. And again, I think uh, gray hair and maybe no hair like I have uh, levels the, the playing field a little bit on the healthcare services side. And so I think the saying sort of goes, if you've seen one system or clinic in a healthcare, you know, you've seen them all. I sort of agree with that, but I don't in that I think there's only so many personality types, you know, if you're looking at people. And I think there's only so many sort of personality types or operational systems uh, that are uh, there within these clinics. So I think, I, you know, there's always this discussion around you take an anthropologic approach where you go in and you observe how a clinic operates and what are the inefficiencies that are there and how can you actually modify processes like Jeff was speaking of and workflows to be able to help them achieve this one additional task on top of the hundred other things 
know, the primary care docs need to do. And I think that if we focus on that, which will be, which is what we've been trying to do, I think we'll find a matrix of, you know, 20, 30 sort of variations of this. And I think with that, us as Iris migrating to the behavior that exists in these clinics and then bringing hopefully these clinics a little bit towards some of our processes, uh, you know, I think that we'll have a model that is a matrix that allows us to scale across these various clinics. Um, having said that, I mean, I can't say we're there yet, but I think we get better every day. Well, I mean, you know, as you as you mentioned, as and as we've talked about before on this podcast, it is it is very difficult. Like Jeff, from your perspective, is scaling is it how difficult is it to do? And then and then how long? You know, like how how patient can you be with it? How quickly do you need to to see things turn? How how is it from your 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 perspective? Pat, I'm ha- happy to address scaling, but first I I would ask that you remind Dr. Gupta this is an audio podcast, so he does not need to feel obligated to comment on how much or how little he hair he actually has. So we'll, we'll leave We'll leave that off the record. No one, no one, no one can see you. No one can see you for <laughs> as far as they're concerned. You've, you've, you've got a, you've got a full head of, you've got an afro. Right now. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm doing this podcast in my pajamas. So, <laughs> of course. I, so taking full advantage of the, of the, of the medium. Um, no, in, in all sincerity, the ability to scale, especially for early stage companies, is an essential component of our due diligence process. So I represent one of the largest health systems in the U.S. And the question naturally arises, what if we decided to turn your company's technology on at every clinic that we have? Could you support us? Now, in reality, enterprise rollout rarely happens in short order. Um, Iris and, and Dr. Gupta and his team can attest to that with regard to Providence, although we're making great progress. So oftentimes the scaling question is nuanced. When we look at a, a, a company like Iris, we look at their past success in delivering their technology to or, or their service to other health systems with a footprint, at least on a regional level, that's on par with us. And there are also the requisite questions about back office scale, uh, processing, service level agreements and security, which are of paramount importance. And I think, you know, depending on where a company is in its stage of development can be more or less mature. But we assess all of that. And obviously, in Iris's case, it, it checked out very well. So I'm curious. Because you're talking about when you're when you're talking about scaling, you're talking about making a process work in, in di- you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different offices. And you've talked about the the process being very important to work seamlessly within the process of so these primary care um, providers. How often is it though that uh, the person becomes maybe one of the obstacles to scaling smoothly? Like the personalities that work in these different primary care settings, or or just even their different kinds of training. Is that ever a, a big factor, or is it really usually just the process they use in integrating is the most difficult thing? Does that make sense? So I think from our perspective, I can speak for, for it from an Irish perspective. And I think that, um, you know, the technology part, believe it or not, is relatively easy. Uh, the services side, uh, I think, is the more challenging thing uh, because you're talking about behavior change. And uh, you're also talking about, you know, barriers that come up or get put up because, again, you're asking in a primary care setting, uh, for the docs to do one more thing or the nurse to do one more thing. And it's not easy. They're already being asked to do a bunch of things. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, you have to recognize those barriers and you have to sort of address them. You can't just say, 
Dr. Jones, you've got to do this test. You've got to say, you know, Dr. Jones, why don't you want to do this test when it's going to lead to this patient not going blind, right? And you'll, you'll learn a lot of things, uh, you know, as you dive in and you try to figure out. And that's what I was saying. You know, I think you got to take a slightly different approach rather than a top-down, push-down, which, you know, physicians and, uh, you know, healthcare delivery teams don't love that. And I think that part of this, uh, you know, for us as IRS is going to be engaging, you know, the teams to say, listen, this is our vision. This is what we're executing to. What is it uh, that, uh, you know, doesn't make sense? Why are we not all pulling in the same direction? So I think that uh, it takes both technology and because we're a tech-enabled services company, it takes the service side also. Right. That makes sense. I mean, essentially what you're talking about there is just sort of a respect for the individual settings that these primary care, you know, that doctors and, and you know, and other clinicians are, are in, you know, and, and that kind of goes back to, you know, a very big part of your company culture, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd love to actually take a moment here to talk about um, the Iris way. Uh, and and how that kind of r- relates to what, what what you're doing here. The, the Iris way to me when I, when I read about it, you know, when I was you know you know learning about you, feels like a very deliberate approach to creating a specific kind of company culture. Um, can you tell? Can you just just for people who maybe don't 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 know what it is? Can you can you can you talk a little bit about the Iris way? So going to our core values in terms of creating the culture. You know, we created uh, sort of an acronym for IRIS, which is, you know, integrity for the I, R, you know, R is respect. I is innovation because we have to constantly be growing and creating, uh, you know, new tools and new software. But I think the S is for servant leadership. You know, we want to be able to be leaders, but actually be beholden to the customers that we serve, both the patients and the primary care teams. You know, and the way is, uh, you know, we got to work always as a team. We have to be accountable for our actions. That's the A. And the Y is we always have to have a sense of urgency because especially in the startup and growth stage companies, I mean, Jeff has trusted me not only with his organization, but also his money. And, you know, if I don't have that sense of urgency, then I think we can't get across the goal line. So I think the combination of all those things, you know, uh, leads to the end game. And, you know, probably still too early to tell. Uh, but I think certainly we have been breaking. Uh, new records in terms of the number of diabetics we're seeing, and we get more and more institutions that are interested in coming and partnering with us. So I think we're on the right track here. Jeff, culture from a much wider technology business perspective has been a, a huge topic of discussion for, for you know, really a, a long time. Um, many of the tech unicorns would say their very deliberate approach to culture has been instrumental to their success. So do you think this kind of focus on culture, you know, the way Dr. Gupta describes it with his team and his company, do you think this commonly translates or easily translates to the medical technology field? Should more companies focus on culture the way Iris has, or are they a, a bit of an outlier? Does it more just depend on, 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 on what you do as a company? Well, given an investment from Providence Ventures portends a true partnership between Providence and the company in question, and given Providence's steadfast mission and our own culture in the communities we serve, our mission is to care for all of our patients and those in our communities, regardless of their socioeconomic status. We're always interested in locating companies, innovative companies like Iris, that are driven by a similar ethical and moral compass. 
it's certainly not about religious affiliation, although we are predominantly a, a Catholic healthcare system. But one of the things that's unique about our due diligence process is that one of Providence's resident medical ethicists reviews every company we invest in to ensure they have the right standards around the treatment of their employees, whether they are onshore or offshore, how they interact with the environment, their role in serving the needs of the poor and vulnerable, for example. And I can unequivocally say that Iris is a shining example of what we would call a quote-unquote mission-compatible partner. And from my experience, I, I think that kind of culture typically starts from the top. And Dr. Gupta embodies it. He evangelizes it. Um, just a quick aside, I had the opportunity to attend an IRIS all-hands meeting last year when individuals from the company had an opportunity to ask their board and investors questions and to discuss their passion for the IRIS mission. It was a very palpable um, and moving feeling in that room when I was there. I mean, some of the folks teared up as they talked about their passion for leveraging technology to help patients live more productive lives by avoiding such serious conditions as blindness. And so, you know, I think building startups is not easy. That's an understatement. And so this type of culture, regardless, I think, of whether you're in the medical technology field or, or a pure play tech startup, I think it helps keep employees engaged during those ups and downs. Thank you for that, Jeff. Let me ask let me ask you this. From the investor perspective, what could other startup medical technology companies learn from Iris and a leader like Dr. Gupta? Guide any new innovators who might be listening uh, right now as to what they should take away from today's conversation? Well, we've talked a lot about mission and culture already, so I won't rehash those topics, Pat, as essential as they are to, the build, to building the will it takes to introduce a new solution to the healthcare market. I will add, however, that sometimes we see challenging situations whereby a founding executive like Dr. Gupta has trouble letting go of the reins of his company to other operational leadership, namely a different CEO in many cases. That's not to suggest that Sunil is not deeply engaged in our company strategy or some of the early areas of development we're focused on, but he's shown the entrepreneurial wisdom by coupling his medical expertise and his deep desire to help this patient population with the requisite technology, operations, and sales expertise that it takes to fully go from a great mission-oriented idea idea to a successful commercial enterprise. Finally, I'll say that while Providence Ventures built its conviction in the company's market opportunity with respect to diabetic retinopathy exams, we are also in parallel collectively as investors, a board, and a company looking for opportunities to leverage our place in the primary care setting, the opportunity to both increase the efficiency of DRE, uh, through things like artificial intelligence and better workflow, as we've discussed, and to leverage these eye exams as a diagnostic for other important public health challenges, such as earlier diagnosis of cardiac conditions and HIV. So having an initial anchor solution with significant value, which diabetic retinopathy exams do, but a land and expand opportunity into other conditions is only expected to increase Iris's value over time and create an even bigger market expansion opportunity. And to me, those are really the hallmarks for many successful entrepreneurial endeavors. So, Dr. Gupta, in turn, I ask this question of all our guests because I think it's really helpful to people. What should young innovators do to increase their chances for success in the field of medical technology? That's an interesting question, Pat. I mean, I think that uh, 
again, identify a problem that needs to be solved. And the great thing in terms of opportunity is in healthcare, we've got so much to fix um, and do better. And so I think identify a problem that has impact, uh, you know, on patient and patient lives and outcomes as as Jeff spoke to. And I think secondly, I think you need expertise. Um, So I know what I know well, which is retina, and I know that this is a problem that can be fixed. What I don't know well is that I grew up in the eye care world, and the patients are sitting in the primary care world. And so our most recent CEO uh, is uh, Chris Belmont, and Chris Belmont came from Oshner, and after that he was at MD Anderson. But you know he comes from that IDN large institution world. He knows how Epic, Cerner, all these large uh, you know uh, shops operate on the technology side. So. To Jeff's point, make sure you surround yourself with the people that fill in the gaps that you don't have. So know your uh, deficiencies. Uh, you know, leave your ego at the door because it'll get checked at the door anyway. And you know, really surround yourself. Uh, you know, with the right team. And then lastly, I think that if you're in the healthcare world, I really do think you need docs that have been there, done that. And I think that that they would bring, you know, the expertise and the knowledge base, uh, you know, so uh, you can actually execute to an end game that you're targeting. Yeah, Pat, I I just want to add in one final comment, um, which is probably evident throughout this podcast. But if ever there was someone I've worked with who has earned the right to kind of wear their ego on the sleeve, uh, it's Dr. Gupta. And as you can probably tell from the way he communicates and articulates his passion for what he does. I mean, we didn't even get into the fact that the guy is a world-class bowling ball juggler. Um, so I, there, there are a lot of unknown talents there. But that's he, the hardest. That's the hardest to do. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I mean, again, it is such a delight to work for somebody who has the intelligence, the drive, the mission that he does. But to reiterate my other point, is willing to know when he needs to compliment all that he brings to the table with more to truly find success. And, and he addressed the fact that sometimes that means checking the ego at the door. And it's unfortunately a really rare skill. Um, you know, entrepreneurs are very confident people by nature. So anyway, he, he's emblematic of the ability to do that with, with great effectiveness. Well, once again, uh, both of you have a terrific mission. Um, best of luck with continuing to scale and to hopefully, you know, eventually prevent blindness in 100% of diabetic patients. That is just that is just an awesome, awesome mission to have out there. Can't thank you enough for being on the podcast, Jeff Stolte and Dr. Sunil Gupta. Thank you very much, Pat. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gupta. Pleasure. That's it for this episode of Providence Ventures Radio, where we talk about funding the future of healthcare. If you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, or just want to tell us you think we're on the right track, do it. We'll get the message. Check out the Prov Innovation channel on Medium and leave your thoughts or follow Providence Ventures on Twitter. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. Great job, guys. That was fun. All right. Good. hope that got it done. <laughs> well done. All right, gents. Thanks, gentlemen. Take care. Thank you, Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Thank you much.